Genealogy Gone Wild. On this episode, what am I going to do with an entire chapter of Genesis that is devoted to genealogy? Well, you can find out on this episode of Does the Bible Say That? Hey, all of you beautiful people out there in podcast land, hello and welcome to another episode of Does the Bible Say That? I am the host of this thing, David Lester, and thank you so much for listening to this podcast. This is an inclusive Bible podcast, so you may be a Christian believer like me, you might be a non-believer, you might be a member of another faith, you might be an ex-evangelical or maybe you're a religious nun, like not like the Catholic kind, but nun as in N-O-N-E. My goal with this podcast is to make this all about the Bible. If you just want to learn more about the Bible, what it says, and what it means, regardless of what you personally believe, hopefully this can be the podcast for you. If you like what I'm doing, just a reminder, please leave a rating and a review as that helps other people find the show who also might be interested in this project. And if you wouldn't mind, please also share this on your social media feeds and let other people know about the show. It would be greatly, greatly appreciated. All right. For this episode, we have, or I have, I guess I should say, a task in front of me. And... That task is Genesis chapter 5. This entire chapter in the opening book of the Hebrew Scriptures is a genealogy. It's the Ancestry.com of the ancient world, right? It is uh, ancient people recording where they came from, their families, their ancestors, their relationships with each other and with God. That's what they were interested in. So they're recording these facts about their lineage, which would lead directly to the founding of the nation of Israel, the ancient nation of Israel. And what am I going to do with this thing? Well, we are going to find out. Uh, before I read Genesis chapter 5, just a little bit of a, a recap from where we have come from. Genesis chapter 1, God creates the whole world, a cosmological perspective on God's creation. He creates male and female in God's image, Genesis 1, verses 26 and 27. That is a foundational idea for theology, that people are sacred, that they bear the image of God. Genesis chapter 2 gets a little bit more close up. God is planting a garden. God creates man and breathes into man the breath of life. He creates woman from man's side. And then in Genesis chapter 3, that man and that woman, Adam and Eve, they eat from a tree that they're not supposed to eat from, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And there's a lot of discussion as to what that is and what that means if you listen to past episodes. Long story short, they are evicted from this Garden of Eden, this, this kind of perfect oasis, it sounded like, in the middle of the desert. Like this is, you know, the Middle East, even back then. 
Uh, so, you know, there's plants, there's trees, there's rivers, there's water. It sounded like a perfect place to reside and call your home. They, they're evicted from this place as a consequence of eating from this tree that they are not supposed to eat from. And then they have children, Cain and Abel. And we have the tragic story of Cain killing Abel because... Abel's offering was looked on more favorably by God than Cain's was. So Cain gets evicted even further out from the east of Eden, outside the garden, and becomes kind of a restless wanderer until he settles down. He marries, has a kid named Enoch. He builds a city. And then it, we have Cain's genealogy going down uh, to Lamech. And within Cain's genealogy... There's people that are into music and metalworking, and there's kind of culture developing in the city, kind of cool. And then abruptly in Genesis chapter 4, uh, it switches back to Adam and Eve. Likely they are estranged from Cain, who did this awful thing by killing Abel, and Adam and Eve have another son named Seth. And there's a hopeful note to the end of Genesis chapter 4. Seth was born. His name could mean substitute. And it says literally at the end of Genesis chapter 4, people began to call on the name of the Lord. So it kind of ends with a hopeful note. And with that, we are at chapter 5. Here is the entirety of Genesis chapter 5, verses 1 through 32. Are you ready for some genealogies for a lot of names and a lot of years that ancient people lived, and uh, wait till you get a load of these years. You probably are already aware, but there's some, there's some big numbers in this bunch. So here we go, Genesis chapter 5. This is a written account of Adam's family line. When God created mankind, he made them in the likeness of God. He created them male and female and blessed them, and he named them mankind when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he had a son in his own likeness, in his own image, and he named him Seth. After Seth was born, Adam lived 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Adam lived a total of 930 years, and then he died. When Seth had lived 105 years, he became the father of Enosh. After he became the father of Enosh, Seth lived 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Seth lived a total of 912 years, and then he died. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he became the father of Kenan. After he became the father of Kenan, Enosh lived 815 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Enosh lived a total of 905 years, and then he died. When Kenan had lived 70 years, he became the father of Mahalalel. After he became the father of Mahalalel, Kenan lived 840 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Kenan lived a total of 910 years, and then he died. When Mahalalel had lived 65 years, he became the father of Jared. After he became the father of Jared, Mahalalel lived 830 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Mahalalel lived a total of 895 years, and then he died. When Jared had lived 162 years, he became the father of Enoch. After he became the father of Enoch, Jared lived 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Jared lived a total of 962 years, and then he died. 
When Enoch had lived 65 years, he became the father of Methuselah. After he became the father of Methuselah, Enoch walked faithfully with God 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Enoch lived a total of 365 years. Enoch walked faithfully with God, and then he was no more because God took him away. When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he became the father of Lamech. After he became the father of Lamech, Methuselah lived 782 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Methuselah lived a total of 969 years, and then he died. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he had a son. He named him Noah and said, He will comfort us in the labor and painful toil of our hands caused by the ground the Lord has cursed. After Noah was born, Lamech lived 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Lamech lived a total of 777 years and then he died. After Noah was 500 years old, he became the father of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And that is the entirety of Genesis chapter 5. We did it. We got through chapter 5, the big, long genealogy. And right off the bat here, I have a couple of questions. And as you're following along with me, or maybe you're reading the Bible along with me as you listen to this podcast, perhaps you have these questions too. Number one is, how in the world did people live as long as they are recorded to have lived in this Genesis text. You'll notice Methuselah, that is the oldest, that's the longest life that is recorded in the entire Bible, 969 years, almost a thousand years, right? So how did people live that long? First question. Second question is, is this genealogy, does it really flow from generation to generation, or are there holes sometimes in these genealogies? And that's kind of another question that comes up in the recording of these accounts. Um, because as we know, these are, when we're talking about the actual personalities in Genesis, if you take these to be actual people who lived, which I do, we know that when Genesis was being written down, and edited together, it was long after these people have lived. So this, these are oral traditions or other writings or records that were edited and compiled into the document of Genesis as we have it today and then handed down through the ages. So it is a, a fair question to ask, are there holes in these genealogies? Like, are they highlighting major personalities that they heard about from their past, these ancient people that they, they recognize as being major leaders or patriarchs. So I'm going to save those two important questions for after we walk through the text here and see what is in this genealogy and whether stuff we can learn and glean from all that is going on here in Genesis chapter 5. On that note, it may be helpful for us to understand, you know, how and why these genealogies were compiled, and there's a lot of debate about that. 
In the book, uh, Genesis, History, Fiction, or Neither, Three Views on the Bible's Earliest Chapters, uh, with contributors James K. Hoffmeyer, Gordon J. Winham, and Kenton L. Sparks. Uh, Gordon J. Winham actually writes in his section, quote, Scholars are divided as to whether the genealogies or the narratives are the earlier elements in Genesis. Though most believe that the narratives came first and the genealogies were added later, I think there are good reasons for maintaining the opposite and seeing the narratives as expanding the genealogies. The sequencing of the material is hard to prove, but looking at the present final form of Genesis 1 through 11, one must agree that the narratives do elaborate on people in the genealogies. Thus, as a first approximation, one could describe the genre of Genesis 1 through 11 as an expanded genealogy, unquote. And I think this is an interesting thought because this, this goes back to one of the points that, we, that, that we've been making in this podcast series, and that is that ancient people were just interested in where they had come from, who their ancestors were, and what their relationship with God was like, and kind of what episodes and adventures that they had in their lives. So they were recording a history of their own people, and then sometimes they bring certain personalities out and talk about important things or events that happened in their life. And I think that makes sense for how to read this. And so a lot of people skip over this genealogy. A lot of people don't preach out of it. And I get that. This isn't to guilt or shame anybody for not preaching on a, on a given Sunday morning or during any kind of church event, a genealogy like Genesis chapter 5. It's kind of difficult because you look at it and you're like, what, you know, what do I do with this? Where do I go with this? And that is completely understandable. But it is in the Hebrew Scriptures. It is in the Bible. And so it is there for a reason and is important for that reason to recognize this is a, a recording of their their history, their, their ancestry. And, you know, the common question that we all ask ourselves, where we came from and, and what came before us. And, and those are important human questions to ask. The IVP Bible Background Commentary Old Testament uh, by John H. Walton, Victor H. Matthews, and Mark W. Chevalis has more information on the importance of genealogies to this culture. Quote, genealogies represent continuity and relationship. Often in the ancient Near East, they are used for purposes of power and prestige. Linear geologies start at point A, the creation of Adam and Eve, for example, and end at point B, Noah and the flood, which is coming up in our walk through the Bible here. Their intention is to bridge a gap between major events. Alternately, they can be vertical, tracing the descendants of a single family, Esau in Genesis 36, 1 through 5, and then 9 through 43. In the case of linear geologies, the actual amount of time represented by these successive generations does not seem to be as important as the sense of completion or adherence to a purpose, such as a charge to be fertile and fill the earth. Vertical genealogies focus on establishing legitimacy for membership in the family or tribe, as in the case of the Levitical genealogies in Ezra 2. 
Mesopotamian sources do not offer many genealogies, but most of those that are known are linear in nature. Most of these are either of royal or scribal families, and most are only three generations with none more than 12. Egyptian genealogies are mostly of priestly families and are likewise linear. They extend to as many as 17 generations, but are not common until the first millennium B.C., Genealogies are often formatted to suit a literary purpose. So, for instance, the genealogies between Adam and Noah and Noah and Abraham are each set up to contain 10 members, with the last having three sons, unquote. So that is some of the importance that we're dealing with um, in examining these genealogies and why they were so important to the authors of Genesis back in the time and the editors, why they are important to include in the overall narrative. With that as an introduction to set up the context, let's dive in to the passage in Genesis chapter 5 for this episode. Here is verse 1, the first part of verse 1. This is the written account of Adam's family line. So listeners and readers will probably notice a similarity between this verse in chapter 5, verse 1, and also the verse in Genesis chapter 2, verse 4. The word accounts here, or generations, toldoth in, in Hebrew. So we have a written toldoth, a written account of the generations. And what's fascinating about this verse is, first of all, Verses like this usually serve as, as a heading when we're introducing a new section of the text. And as far as introducing these new sections of the text, when we see similar verses like this, this is the only verse that actually references a book. Another way to translate the first part of this verse at the beginning of chapter 5 is this is the book of the family history of Adam. And that brings up a question. What is this book? Book here could mean, it could mean like some kind of short legal document. It could mean like pretty much any other kind of written document. But it seems like contextually here, this book is referring to some kind of genealogy. So in other words, when the editors of Genesis were putting together these narratives and these texts, they may have had another written book, and who knows how far back this book goes, right? They may have had another written book which had this genealogy in it, and so they put this genealogy into the Genesis text that we have in front of us today to record the generations, to give the accounts of these leaders and these people and the children that they had, as well as how long that they lived with this genealogy line. All right, and then we continue on with the rest of verse 1. When God created mankind, he made them in the likeness of God. And you listeners will know that this is a throwback to Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. It is the theological foundation of humanity that human beings are sacred because they are made in the image of God. Notice how this verse, though, substitutes out image of God and puts in likeness of God. 
And this brings up another question that I was dealing with in the first couple of episodes when I was going through Genesis chapter one with with all of you listeners. What exactly does image of God mean? And I shared some different viewpoints and then stated my opinion that I think the best way to read image of God is that humanity was created as a representative of God. However, this verse seems to maybe question that a little bit, seems to question my own view, because it is substituting image and likeness. Why? Well, let's go to a commentary that I've been using in this series, Commentary on the Torah by Richard Elliott Friedman. He has a commentary on that very question. Let me quote him here. The first man's similarity to his son is described with the same two nouns that are used to describe the first two humans' similarity to God, Genesis 1, 26-27. It certainly sounds as if it means something physical here. We surely would have taken it that way if we had, not, if we had read this verse without having read Genesis 1. Still, we must be cautious on such a classic biblical question. In any case, the significance of this verse is to establish that whatever it is that the first humans acquire from God, it is something that passes by heredity. It is not only the first two humans, but the entire species that bears God's image, unquote. And I love those thoughts from Richard Elliott Friedman. I still have a hard time considering that image and likeness means something physical as far as how human beings were made. It, it could entirely be possible. In Christian theology, we believe, I believe, in the Trinity, and the second person of the Trinity is Jesus Christ, and he is God incarnate. He is God as a human being. And so if we're made in the likeness of God, if there's something physical there, Jesus was a human being. Christians believe 100% God, 100% man. So he was a human being. We could be made in his likeness. It could very well be something physical. Again, I think representative is the best way. It could mean multiple things too. I mean, it, you know, we're not we're not shutting off options here. It could could be a multifaceted jewel of truth as far as everything that the image of God or the likeness of God means. And also, don't forget about the spiritual component as well, because God is described as a spirit so much in Scripture. To be made in God's likeness is to also have a spiritual nature, and that's that's a core part of who you are. Your, your physical and your spiritual all mixed together in a holistic human whole being made in the image and likeness of God. Verse 2, he created them male and female and blessed them, and he named them mankind when they were created. So again, continuing on with Genesis chapter 1, 26 and 27, he makes humanity and he blesses them. And remember, blessing means God's favor. God is putting his favor upon humanity. His stamp of saying, like he did on day six of the creation, that humanity was very good. That was the culmination of the creation account in Genesis chapter one. And God said, male and female, humanity, were very good. 
And that, again, speaks to the sacred status set that we all have before God. And also, with this genealogy, I think it is a huge statement that the last part of verse 1 and also verse 2 here start the genealogy with God. Because we read through this passage, so you guys all know there's a father's name that's mentioned, and then it says the you know, the son that he had, and then how long he lived. And that's that's the formula that's going on here in chapter five. This entire genealogy starts with God. So this is portraying God as a parent. We are all God's children. We all come after God. We are all made in God's likeness and image. And that is an incredible truth. Um, this speaks to ancient people. Again, I sound like a broken record. They are tracing their families back through the generations, tracing their ancestors all the way to God, their God. And not just a God of Israel or a God of proto-Israelites, but the God who created everything, the ultimate God, because that's what Genesis chapter 1 means, right? We go to chapter 1, and it is cosmological. God, Elohim, created everything. And so this genealogy, this ancient book that was perhaps grafted into Genesis chapter 5 by these early editors, they were taking an account that goes all the way back to God showing their own connection, their ancestors' connection to the divine. All right, Genesis chapter 5, verse 3. When Adam had lived 130 years, he had a son in his own likeness, in his own image, and he named him Seth. After Seth was born, Adam lived 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Adam lived a total of 930 years, and then he died. We have similar language here when Adam had lived 130 years and then Adam and Eve had Seth. And we remember from the end of chapter 4, this was a positive and hopeful note for this family after the horrific tragedy of Cain killing Abel and obviously a huge disconnect and break in the relationship with Cain as Cain started wandering farther out to the land of Nod and going and building his own city. Adam and Eve have another son named Seth. And Seth's name could mean, could possibly have meant substitute. And look at the language here. Adam had a son in his own likeness, in his own image. Adam and Eve were created in the likeness and image of God. And now they are passing this down to their children. And that's really important. And that's what Richard Elliott Friedman was getting at. The image of God, physical, spiritual, whether it just means representative of God, whatever this is, is something, it is something that is spiritually genetic, hereditary. It gets passed down through the generations. Everyone is made in the image and likeness of God. We can't escape it. And then Adam lives another 800 years and has other sons and daughters. 
You'll remember my comment on this verse back when we were talking about the the classic Sunday school question, where did Cain get his wife? And we also tackled the question of what other people would Cain be afraid of when God was cursing him to wander and walk the earth and then Cain was freaked out that someone would kill him? Well, who would kill him, right? Who, who are these other people on the earth? So fundamentalists and conservatives will take this uh, verse, Genesis chapter 5, verse 4, Adam and Eve had other sons and daughters, and we'll say, obviously, that this branch, these other sons and daughters, spread out from the east of Eden, outside of the Garden of Eden, and kept having children, and the generations kept going rapidly, and so there were lots and lots of people on the earth. And obviously, you have Adam living 930 years, so I guess there's, you know, there's a lot of time for this to happen. But there still is a question of the order of events, right? Were, were Cain and Abel the first two children of Adam and Eve? Did they have a bunch of children before Cain and Abel? And then the Genesis author and editors brought out the story of Cain and Abel because it was such a tragedy and it's such a, a horrific part of this family's legacy. Were Cain and Abel the very first children? We don't really know. The text doesn't really say. Adam lives 930 years. I mean, Adam, you almost, almost got to Methuselah's age. You, you were so close, but you just fell short. Sorry, buddy. Sorry. Okay. We're continuing on here with Seth. Seth had lived 105 years. He became the father of Enosh. After he became the father of Enosh, Seth lived 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Seth lived a total of 912 years and then he died. So poor Seth uh, didn't quite make it to his dad's age. He fell 18 years short after living 912 years. I mean, can you imagine? Life is so wonderful. It is so wonderful being on this planet. But being around for 912 years... You can certainly watch every single show and movie on Netflix, I think. I, th I think you could get that in in that time. Probably even more worth your time is reading like every single book in your public library. You would probably have time to do that. You could build that knowledge. Who knows how many musical instruments you could teach yourself or how many languages that you can learn. How many, how many human languages could you know if you lived 912 years? I mean, my goodness. So... Good for you, Adam. Good for you, Seth. And Seth's son was Enosh. At least one, one of his children was named Enosh. Enosh probably means just a generic man in Hebrew, as we covered in uh, Genesis chapter 4, verse 26. That was a part of last episode. Um, at the end of the genealogy there in chapter 4, it mentions uh, Seth having Enosh. And then Enosh gets in on the genealogy action and the whole begetting thing. Verse 9, when Enosh had lived 90 years, he became the father of Kenan. After he became the father of Kenan, Enosh lived 815 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Enosh lived a total of 905 years and then he died. So there you have it. And you'll notice a pattern developing here as far as these names that are introduced, the children they have, other sons and daughters, 
there's a distinct pattern with this genealogy. So are we having fun yet? Are we having fun on this genealogy gone wild? I hope you at least find this interesting. All right, on to the next one. Then we move on to Kenan. When Kenan had lived 70 years, he became the father of Mahalalel. And after he became the father of Mahalalel, Kenan lived 840 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Kenan lived a total of 910 years. And then he died. So Kenan mentioned here, um, this, his name may actually be a variant type of name on of of Cain. Mahalalel's name uh, could mean praise of God or simply praising God. And that kind of brings up, we're talking about the meanings of these names because the meanings of names in these genealogies are actually really significant to these ancient authors and to the to the ancient people who trace their genealogy and their family history. Dr. John H. Walton, in his commentary, the NIV application commentary, Genesis, talks about the significance of the names and genealogies and how important they are. Quote, personal names serve as an important key to language, culture, and theology. The giving of names in the ancient world was a significant act. Often a name expressed hopes or blessings. The name was expected to play a role in the unfolding destiny of the individual and to take on additional significance and appropriateness throughout one's life, though the direction of that appropriateness was impossible to foresee. Most names in the ancient world make, make statements, unquote. And then uh, Dr. Walton continues on a little later in talking about the names specifically in this genealogy. Quote, the initial names in Genesis, Adam, Eve, Abel, Seth, Enosh, are all clearly Hebrew, but not theophoric. The only theophoric names in the genealogy in Genesis 5 are Mahuajel, Methushel, and Mahalalel feature the divine name El, which indicates a Semitic language setting. Indications of Mesopotamian, Akkadian, include the use of the term Mulu, man, in Methushel and Methuselah. Most of the names can be explained using Hebrew etymologies. Current scholarly consensus accepts that Hebrew did not develop as a language until the first half of the second millennium BC, in which case it is logical to conclude that these are translations from a language used in earlier sources, unquote. So that's why there can be some difficulty in understanding fully some of these names. We may be dealing with multiple translations from prior writings and languages as languages evolved and, and developed. But it is very interesting that the theophoric names having the word El, uh, think back to God's name in Hebrew, Elohim, right? And so that's what Dr. Walton means by theophoric names. And then obviously the the other a lot of the other names that we read in this passage are certainly Hebrew or Semitic in in nature. 
Moving right along, we're at verse 15, chipping away here. When Mahalalel had lived 65 years, he became the father of Jared. After he became the father of Jared, Mahalalel lived 830 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Mahalalel lived a total of 895 years, and then he died. So Jared is his son. And Jared obviously is a name that is still pretty common today. I've known lots of lots of Jareds in my in my life. It is uh, uncertain wh- what Jared's name means in this context and in this ancient language. It could be derived from Hebrew, meaning something like to go down or going down, or it could come from a word perhaps meaning servant. Maybe an Arabic word meaning courageous. So that is potentially what Jared's name could could mean. Verse 18 now. When Jared had lived 162 years, he became the father of Enoch. After he became the father of Enoch, Jared lived 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Jared lived a total of 962 years, and then he died. Okay, so we see the name of Enoch here. And you will recall, uh, dear listener and Bible reader, that Enoch obviously was a name in the Cainite genealogy from chapter 4. Enoch was actually Cain's direct son, and Cain named the city that he built after Enoch. And you will notice in this passage, there are some repeat names that are used. We will later on in chapter 5 get to the name of Lamech, and the Cainite genealogy in chapter 4 ended with Lamech. So what is going on here? Why the duplicate names? There are some scholars, this is probably a minority, at least as far as I can tell. Remember, I'm not a scholar myself. I'm learning these things and sharing them with you out into podcast land. I'm, I'm doing the best I can. But I, I think there's a minority of people who take this as, obviously, the line of Seth is being portrayed here as kind of the, the godly line coming from Adam and Eve, potentially the substitute, you know, what, what Seth's name means. Uh, so this this was the godly line going on. So some scholars will say these names are being redeemed, you know, like Enoch and Lamech. They were in the Canaanite genealogy coming from a guy who did the who, coming from a guy who horrifically killed his own brother. And then his line had other problems such as the boastfulness of Lamech. And so these names are being uh, redeemed. A lot of other scholars, though, simply say, it's the same name, yes, but we're talking about two different people. There was an Enoch in Cain's line, there was a Lamech in Cain's line, and now there's an Enoch and a Lamech in the line of Seth. And, and they're clearly two separate human beings. And the evidence is absolutely fully with these scholars who suggest that Enoch and Lamech here in Seth's line are two different people from the similarly named people in Cain's line. And that's because the biographical details are different in each of them. You can compare chapter four and chapter five, and as far as like who the father is and you know who was begetting who and all of that stuff, it's it's a completely different genealogy. So these are 
people who are similarly similarly named, but they are two distinct human beings who lived. Verse 21 now. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he became the father of Methuselah. After he became the father of Methuselah, Enoch walked faithfully with God 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Enoch lived a total of 365 years. Enoch walked Enoch walked faithfully with God, then he was no more because God took him away. Okay, wow. What is going on here? Definitely what this passage, these verses are getting at is Enoch was some kind of super saint. He was a very, very righteous person, walked faithfully and closely with God, and then God took him away. And this is obviously different from the other people listed in this genealogy. They are all recorded to have died, presumably from the causes that people would normally die from, right? Uh, that, that human beings would normally die from. Enoch is the standout on this list because it doesn't say that he died. It says that God took him away. And Enoch here is the seventh from Adam. Remember, seven means fullness or completeness. And that's very interesting that we come to this section of the genealogy and we have in fullness and completeness a guy named Enoch who is walking very, very closely with God and he doesn't die. And this is another distinction from the Enoch in chapter 4. These descriptions of walking with God were not made about the Enoch of chapter 4 in Cain's genealogy, but they are made here in the genealogy of Seth. Seventh in the line from Adam, walking with God, a phrase expressing piety. So this is an alternative to dying. Where exactly was Enoch taken? Was this like a rapture? Was he just suddenly raptured off the earth because God said, I really like this guy. I am bringing him home right now. He's not going to have to go through the dying process. I'm bringing him right up to where I dwell. It could possibly be that. We don't really know. And again, I did a little bit of work a few episodes ago on the afterlife. What, what was the conception of these ancient Israelites who lived in this time? What was their conception of the afterlife? They probably did not have a conception like Christians do today of heaven. Although, side note, I think that Christians today claim to know a lot more about quote-unquote heaven than actually is talked about in the Bible text, even in the New Testament. I think there is a tremendous amount we do not know about the afterlife. Even with the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, there's a lot that we don't know. As a Christian, and I think many Christians would say amen to this as well, we, we trust that whenever we do die, we will be in the presence of Jesus. Wherever that is, whenever that is, 
we will be in in his presence. That's our trust. We don't exactly know what that looks like, where that is geographically. Uh, we we just have faith that we'll be with him. That's that's a big part of the Christian message. But they probably didn't have any kind of conception of heaven like New Testament Christian believers do. But it doesn't seem like Enoch would have went to Sheol either. Remember, this was kind of the work I did a couple of episodes ago. This was the neutral underworld that they had as a sort of belief in the afterlife. But since it is a neutral underworld, it seems unlikely that Enoch actually went there because it, it, it seems like just with what the text is saying, Enoch was just beamed up, to use Star Trek language. He was raptured up into the presence of God. It doesn't sound like he went to a neutral place. It sounds like God just brought him, Enoch, right into God's presence. But there's a little bit of a mystery there. Again, we're we're working with a text that communicates some things to us, but then there are just so many more questions, and that's what makes this so interesting and fascinating, at least to me and hopefully to you, dear listener. Okay, so verse 25 now. When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he became the father of Lamech. We've heard that name before. After he became the father of Lamech, Methuselah lived 782 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Methuselah lived a total of 969 years and then he died. The very literal meaning of Methuselah is man of Shela. And what Shela means, especially in this ancient language, is un- uncertain. It-, it could be a name of an underworld god. Methuselah's name could also mean one who was sent or man of the dart. Or missile, uh, one commentator, I think it was Gordon J. Wenham wrote, or missile, man of the dart. So this guy's coolness factor immediately goes up. Yes, what if your name meant man of the dart? That's that's pretty cool. But congratulations to Methuselah, because this is the oldest recorded age in the entire Bible, 900 and 69 years. Congratulations. Methuselah, you win. You win the prize. So he has the son Lamech. Remember, this is a different Lamech than the one from the Canaanite genealogy. Verse 28. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he had a son. He named him Noah and said, he will comfort us in the labor and painful toil of our hands caused by the ground the Lord has cursed. There you have it. Noah's name literally means rest in Hebrew. And we have one of the most famous leaders and figures in the book of Genesis, and not only in the book of Genesis, but in the entire Bible entire world history, right? Noah, the man whose name literally means rest. And we have here from Adam to Noah, a genealogy linking these two massive personalities. 
And Lamech has the little statement that he says about Noah. He will comfort us in the labor and painful toil of our hands caused by the ground the Lord has cursed. And so that is a direct reference back to the curse on the land, which is in Genesis chapter 3, verse 17. That mankind would have to work harder. There would be thorns and thistles, problem with work. The land was was cursed. And so Lamech's hope for Noah will be to provide some kind of rest or relief from this curse. Whether or not that happens or not, I guess, is maybe up to your interpretation. Now, that's that's the chapters in Genesis that we are heading toward here. But Noah's obviously going to make the ark, and God is going to save Noah and his family from judgment via the great flood. So Noah is going to be the refounder, if you will, of humanity. After Noah was born, Lamech lived 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Lamech lived a total of 777 years, and then he died. That's a lot of fullnesses and completenesses in 777 years for the Seth Lines version of Lamech. And then verse 32, we switch the spotlight back to Noah. After Noah was 500 years old, he became the father of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, his three sons, which will join him and his family in the ark, being saved from the judgment that is coming. One major note here, notice how this verse breaks the regular pattern of the genealogy that we have established in chapter 5. It breaks the typical flow of the book of the family of Adam to go back to where we started here because we have Noah and then we have three of his sons listed. So there are some scholars who wonder whether this verse was inserted by another author. In other words, in theory, hypothetically, they had this book of Adam they inserted it into uh, the Bible to record those genealogies and the personalities and then the sons that they had and how many years they lived. And then uh, comes this verse written by somebody else about Noah and his uh, three sons, as these figures would become absolutely huge in Genesis history and world history, as different lines post-flood would come out from Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So Shem's name may have come from kind of a Sumerian-type word. It's not really known. It doesn't, it, again, it's hard to translate some of these names. The name could mean reputation or fame. You know, perhaps Noah named his son this because Noah wanted to make an ex- expression through his son, <laughs> reputation, fame. It's, uh, it's kind of hard to tell. Ham may be related to Hamu, which was a, a West Semitic sun god. And the, the name Ham actually means hot. <laughs> so that's interesting. If your name, if your name meant hot. Um, so who knows? There is going to be uh, post-flood some weird sexual content. And so who knows if his name actually has something to do with that. That's in Genesis chapter 9, verse 20 to 27. We will get there. Uh, But 
yeah, that that is what the name of Ham means. And and Japheth's name may mean something along the lines of to make broad, or like may may God enlarge him, enlarge his his name or or his tribe. And so as you will see, there will be different lineages coming from Shem, Ham, and Japheth, uh, Noah's sons, after the flood. So this is a big, big deal. And this genealogy, so we had at the beginning, you know, this is the account of Adam's family line. We have it going from Adam to Noah. And now we're going to take another break as we get into chapter six here, and we're going to get back into different narratives in in scripture that will eventually go into the flood. And then the genealogy is again going to pick up. And the end of Noah's genealogy would pick is going to be picked back up in Genesis chapter 9, verse 28 and 29, which I'll go ahead and read this for you because it's very interesting. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. Noah lived a total of 950 years, and then he died, unquote. So that's the verse from Genesis chapter 9. So we have a little bit of a break in this genealogy to record some narratives that are going to happen upcoming episodes that I'm going to do. And then it comes back to kind of close out this genealogy from Adam to Noah at the end of Genesis chapter 9. And that is the genealogy account. So now we have a couple of questions that we need to address. And I talked about this at the beginning of the episode. I strive to be a man of my word so I'm circling back around to answer these questions that you may have had as we read this passage. How in the world do people live this long? 969 years was how long Methuselah lived, which again is the longest recorded age in the Bible. From my own tradition in evangelicalism, the book uh, When Critics Ask, a popular handbook on Bible difficulties by Norman Geisler and Thomas Howell, addresses this question, and here's what they say. Quote, Genesis 5.5, how could people live over 900 years? Problem. Adam lived 930 years, Genesis 5.5. Methuselah lived 969 years, Genesis 5.27. And the average age of those who lived out their normal lifespan was over 900 years of age. Yet even the Bible recognizes that most people live only 70 or 80 years before natural death occurs. See Psalm 90.10. Solution. First of all, the reference in Psalm 90 is to Moses' time, 1400s BC, and later when longe longevity had decreased to 70 or 80 years for most, though Moses himself lived 120 years, Deuteronomy 34.7. Some have suggested that these years are really only months which would reduce 900 years to the normal lifespan of 80 years. However, this is implausible for two reasons. First, there is no precedent in the Hebrew OT for taking the word year to mean month. Second, since Mahalalel had children when he was only 65, Genesis 5.15, and Canaan had children when he was 70, Genesis 5.12, this would mean they were less than six years old, which is not biologically possible. Others suggest that these names represent family lines or clans that went on for generations before they died out. 
However, this does not make sense for a number of reasons. First, some of these names, e.g. Adam, Seth, Enoch, Noah, are definitely individuals whose lives are narrated in the text, Genesis 1 through 9. Second, family lines do not beget family lines by different names. Third, neither do family lines die as each of these individuals did. Fourth, the reference to having sons and daughters, 5-4, does not fit the clan theory. Consequently, it seems best to take these as years, though they were lunar years of 12 times 30 equals 360 days for several reasons. Number one, first of all, life was later shortened to 120 years as a punishment from God, Genesis 6-3. Two, lifespan decreased gradually after the flood from the 900s, Genesis 5, to the 600s, Shem, Genesis 11, 10 through 11, to the 400s, Selah, 11, 14 to 15, to the 200s, Ru, 11, 20 through 21. Three, biologically, this is no reason humans could not live hundreds of years. Scientists are more baffled by aging and death than by longevity. Number four, the Bible is not alone in speaking of hundreds of years' lifespans among ancients. There are also records from ancient Greek and Egyptian times that speak of humans living hundreds of years, unquote. So that is from the more uh, conservative evangelical camp. For this question, I'm also going to go back to commentary on the Torah by Richard Elliott Friedman and his commentary where he comments on Genesis chapter 5, verse 5. Quote, the long lifespans in the early portions of the Torah are an old question. Some assume that the ancients must have counted years differently, but that is not correct. If we divide Adam's 930 years by 10 to get it within normal range, then how should we divide Moses's 120? It is clear that this author thought of a year as a normal solar year because that is how long the flood lasts. The point to note is lifespans are pictured as growing shorter. The 10 generations from Adam to Noah approach ages of 1,000, but the last one to live more than 900 years is Noah. The next 10 generations start with Shem, who lives 600 years and lifespans decline after him. The last person to live more than 200 years is Terah. Abraham, 175, Isaac, 180, and Jacob, 147, live long lives, but not as long as their ancestors. And Moses lives to be 120, which is understood to have become at some point the maximum for human life. And to fill in more commentary here, we'll go back to uh, Dr. John Walton in the NIV application commentary. Quote, the long lifespans have been a continual curiosity among Bible readers, but if these numbers sound incredible, the years attributed to the Antidevelian Mesopotamian kings make Methuselah seem but an infant. In the Sumerian king list, the shortest reign is 18,600 years, while the longest stretches to 43,200 years. Eight kings compile 241,200 years between them. This text uses the standard Sumerian sexagesimal system. If the notation is read with decimal values rather than sexagesimal values, the numbers are in the same range as the biblical numbers, and the totals of the lists are nearly identical. Have the numbers been misrepresented or misunderstood? Are they symbolic? Did the anti-Duelians simply live longer. There have been many attempts to account for the numbers through mathematical gymnastics, 
But none of the proposals has been able to provide a solution that encompasses all of the data. It is impossible to understand the numbers in terms of something other than base 10, both because base 10 is a norm for Semitic civilizations, except Sumerian-based Akkadian, as far back as records are available, and because any other system results in men fathering children at age 6 or 7 years old. The latter consequence also makes it impossible that a year represents a cycle of the moon rather than a cycle of the sun. If then we accept the biblical account at face value, there are reasons one might expect long lives in the shadow of Eden. Whether one would speculate that the long lives testify to the gradual penetration of sin and death or to the enduring effect of Adam and Eve's temporary pre-fall diet from the tree of life, the accuracy of these numbers can be defended. Those who are more inclined to take them as symbolic must provide an explanation of how the numbers are operating on the symbolic level and how genealogies were understood by the biblical authors that allows us to consider a symbolic view as representing the face value of the text, unquote. Here's another note on the lifespan question, and this is from uh, the book that has been previously quoted in this episode, Genesis, History, Fiction, or Neither, Three Views on the Bible's Earliest Chapters. And this is a section written by Kenton L. Sparks. And listen to this, uh, quote, We have noted already that the long lifespans of these pre-flood biblical heroes has a parallel in the Mesopotamian king list, but the parallel runs still deeper. If we look closely at the chronological figures in Genesis 5, we'll find that these are certainly symbolic rather than literal. The final digit for each number is 0, 2, 5, or 7 in all cases but one. Given that the probability of random ages like this is on the order of 0.000006%. It is clear that these numbers are not chronological in the usual sense. A comparison of these numbers with the ancient Near Eastern evidence suggests that in both cases, the biblical and Mesopotamian kings, king lists, the numbers were derived from or influenced by astronomical and mathematical figures. So it has always been a mistake to use the lifespans in Genesis to reconstruct actual human history, as Archbishop Usher once tried to do, and many continue to do. Another similarity between Genesis 5 and the Mesopotamian tradition concerns the seventh person in each list. The Mesopotamian king lists often stress the special importance of the seventh king, often Imidurankhi, and his wise advisor, often Yutu Abazu, who did not die but ascended into heaven. Genesis 5 also reports that the seventh patriarch was unique. Enoch walked with God, then he was no more, because God took him. It is sensible to infer that the author of Genesis 5 has created this genealogy by reshaping the genealogy still preserved in Genesis 4, the antiquarian genealogy. He recasts the whole in linear form, added chronology, removed extraneous comments, and inserted a comment about the seventh pre-flood hero. The apparent motive was to create a pre-flood genealogy that looks similar to pre-flood king lists from Mesopotamia, unquote. So there you have it. If you want to read these numbers as more symbolic, uh, Kenton L. Sparks 
will help you out on that. If you have another theory or another idea, write to me or let me know, or you can write your own book and put it out there in the world as far as how to interpret these long lifespans. Now on to question two. Are there holes in this genealogy? And from the evangelical tradition that I'm a part of, we'll go back to When Critics Ask, a popular handbook on Bible difficulties. On this question, are there holes in these genealogies? Quote, Genesis 5, 1, how can we reconcile this chronology which adds up to see 4,000 years BC when anthropology has shown humankind is much older. Just as a note here, that's how Norman Geisler and Thomas Howell phrase the question because they're, they're dealing with the ideas of human evolution, which public and private scientists all over the world pretty much concur is how the human race uh, got here on, on this planet. Um, but within trying to solve this question is where they talk about this genealogy issue, which is interesting, right? So let's, let's go on here. Quote, problem. If the ages are added up in Genesis 5 and 10 with the rest of the OT, Old Testament dates, it comes out to 4,000 plus years BC. But archaeologists and anthropologists date modern man many thousands of years before that, at least 10,000 years ago. Side note, it's actually, uh, I think, a little bit more than that now. Um, solution. There is good evidence to support the belief that humankind is more than 6,000 years old, but there are also good reasons to believe there are some gaps in the Genesis genealogies. First, we know there is a gap in the genealogy in the book of Matthew. Matthew's genealogy says, Joram begot Uzziah, Matthew 1.8, but when compared to 1 Chronicles 3, 11 through 14, we see that Matthew leaves out three generations, Ahaziah, Joash, and Amaziah, as follows. And so they show a table here. It, it shows the Gospel of Matthew, and it says Joram, space, 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 Uzziah. And then on the right, it has 1 Chronicles, which has Joram. Ahaziah, Joash, Amaziah, and Uzziah, also called Azariah. Second, there is at least one generation missing in the Genesis genealogy. Luke 3.36 lists Canaan between Arphazad and Shelah, but the name Canaan does not appear in the Genesis record at this point. See Genesis 10, 22 through 24. It is better to view Genesis 5 and 10 as adequate genealogies, not as complete chronologies. Finally, since there are known gaps in the genealogies, we cannot accurately determine the age of the human race by simply adding the numbers in Genesis 5 and 10, unquote. So that was kind of a, a twisty, turny explanation there, because at some point they seem to be getting into what would be like a young earth creationist type position, trying to wrestle with and, and challenge the age of humanity, according to scientists, especially anthropologists, uh, biologists, experts in human evolution and archaeologists. 
And then they kind of come around to saying, well, the Bible doesn't really say how old man is, and it may be very difficult just simply adding up genealogies to really tell because there might be holes in these genealogies, right? I don't think there is evidence here in Genesis chapter 5 that there is necessarily a hole in this genealogy at all. There could be. We don't know. But I don't know if there's much evidence to suggest that. And as we wrap up this episode on Genesis chapter 5, Genealogy Gone Wild, I would like to circle back to the end of last episode at the end of Genesis chapter 4. Last episode was called Battle of the Genealogies. And there was a reason why I named it that. There was one genealogy from Cain. And remember, the Cain genealogy ended with Lamech. It seemed like he was being very boastful. He would be avenged 77 times, where Cain was only going to be avenged seven times. And Cain, as the text recorded, had a direct conversation with God about that. There is no conversation recorded between Lamech and God where God said that Lamech would be avenged 77 times. So it seems to be kind of a boastful poem or rant that he was performing to his wives, Adah and Zillah. And that's where the Cain genealogy abruptly ends, at least according to the Genesis text. And then we go back to Adam and Eve when they have Seth, and Seth has Enosh. People begin to call on the name of the Lord. And then we come into chapter 5 here, which gives a more comprehensive genealogy, starting with God. God creating Adam and Eve, and then from Adam to Noah, it goes on down through. There seems to be a comparison between these genealogies, right? There seems to be Cain's genealogy was plagued with sin and with problems, and then this genealogy, Adam and Noah, is certainly portrayed perhaps as being the righteous genealogy. Remember, the Enoch of this genealogy in chapter 5, as we learned, this guy was so pious and so righteous, God just took him up to where God is, whatever that means. He was just taken out of the earth and didn't die like the other leaders and personalities mentioned in this chapter. So there's definitely a comparison of these genealogies going on. And that's not to say that the comparison of these genealogies is like a G.I. Joe cartoon. I grew up watching G.I. Joe, the heroes of G.I. Joe versus the terrorist organization known as Cobra. Cobra's all bad, G.I. Joe's all good. That's not the case because we look at Cain's genealogy and we see some good, interesting things going on. He's building a city. They're doing shepherding, domesticating of animals. There's metalworking. There's arts and music arising out of this city. There's good things going on because reality is complicated. No one is all bad and all good. But the text seems to be saying there's a general badness going on with Cain's genealogy versus the one that comes from Adam and then from Seth. And as a final note here, there are many commentators who suggest, especially with chapter four and what we are going into in the next couple of chapters, that things are deteriorating in the world. Things are perhaps becoming worse. People are doing worse acts of evil 
So we started with Adam and Eve eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which they were not supposed to eat from. And then the very next generation, we have the, a murder. Cain murders Abel, obviously a horrific crime. And then we have boastful Lamech. So there seems to be a downward spiral because of sin and death. In their book, Encountering the Old Testament, Bill T. Arnold and Brian E. Byer comment on this. Quote, the genealogies of chapter 5 and 10 serve an important function in this medley of sin. Chapter 5 traces 10 generations of the faithful line of Adam from Seth to Noah. The long lives of these early humans may be attributed to the slowly decaying effects of sin in the world. After the flood, the ages of Noah's descendants gradually shorten. And then chapter 6 begins with a troubling story about marriage between the sons of God and the daughters of humanity, unquote. We will save that for next time, but they're making the comment of the effects of sin and death in the world. We have these long lifespans. I realize some people may take it symbolically. These lifespans are getting shorter. The effects of sin are becoming more well-known, sin and death in, in the world. And that is Genesis chapter 5, this big, long genealogy from Adam to Noah, or actually to uh, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, Noah's children, in the final verse of chapter 5. Thank you so much for listening to Genealogy Gone Wild. This has been another episode of Does the Bible Say That? With me being the host, Dave Lester. Please, again, leave a rating and a review if you like this podcast so other people can find this show. If you would be so inclined, uh, it would be great if you could share these episodes on your social media feed in case other people are interested in the Bible, what the Bible says, what the Bible means, and getting into this project with us. I would be so appreciative if you would do that. This will not be a regularly released show. I'm probably going to have a little break here with episodes, but I am planning on being back in the future, and I'm actually trying to put together having some guests come on the show to talk with me about these chapters in the Bible, which should be a lot of fun, and I'll, I'll be reconnecting with some old friends, even maybe that I haven't heard from in a long time from my college years and other places in my life. So I am very, very excited about that. And hopefully you will join me for those episodes that uh, are upcoming. If you want to write to me or contact me, I am on X Twitter at Dave J. Lester. My email is DaveLester1980 at gmail.com. Thank you so much for coming along on this journey with me through the Bible. Until next time.